And let's pray before we jump back into Daniel 10. Lord, you are not only the author of all truth, you are truth itself. Lord, no goodness, no truth, no glory lies outside of your person or your work. And Lord, as we approach the scriptures this morning, we ask that your spirit would be revealing to us the things you want us to know about yourself and about us and the plans you have for us. And Lord, I thank you for a book and a man like Daniel that is so encouraging and reveals so much to us and through which you speak so clearly to us again today. Help us to have hearing ears, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're back in Daniel. We're starting up at chapter 10 this morning. We've been out of this book for, I think, a month or so. Daniel 10, 11, and 12, the last part of the book, are different than any of the previous chapters. If you remember, every chapter before this stands on its own. Every chapter before this is either a single vision, it's a single story, it's a single element that we've looked at. This last three chapter section is different entirely. The last three chapters are one long prophetic portion. So when you start chapter 10 through the end of the book, you're reading one lengthy portion. It's not three separate broken up components, but one lengthy portion. In chapter 10, this last prophetic passage is introduced primarily. Chapter 11 gives us the details. Chapter 12 closes the details of this last prophecy and then basically closes out the book and in all likelihood the end of Daniel's life as well. And just to refresh your memory, Verse 1 will tell us, this is in the time of Cyrus. You remember we've started this book with Nebuchadnezzar a long time ago, 605 B.C. or so, and he took over Jerusalem. He deported the captives. The temple was destroyed in 586, and Babylon had its way for several years. Had some great stories about Nebuchadnezzar. And then in chapter 6, I think it was, we moved into the Medo-Persian Empire, the next great world empire that God said would come. And we're in the third year of that reign. Remember, Daniel is probably in his 90s here. I don't know what he looked like. I kind of imagine he's kind of a shrunken now, smaller old man. But it does remind me of Psalm 92. The end of that passage talks about the righteous growing like trees in the courts of God and that they'll still bear fruit in their old age. And that's certainly true of Daniel, and that's where we'll pick up this morning. Also, probably important to note, if you read the first four chapters of Ezra related to where we're at in Daniel now, this actually is a time in which the first wave of immigrants from Babylon or Medo-Persia back to Jerusalem has already happened. It's not recorded in Daniel. Remember in chapter 9, he realized when he read Jeremiah that this 70-year captivity was about over, and so he prayed about that, and he got this Incredible prophecy about a 490-year period coming up. Um, aside from that, though, the, the immigrants who've gone back have rebuilt the altar, they have instituted sacrifices in Jerusalem again, and they've laid the foundation of the temple. This, In his third year, in Cyrus's third year, at this point the work has probably stopped because locals in Jerusalem wrote letters of complaint back saying this isn't right, these guys shouldn't be doing it. They hinder the work. And so there's a period now that's probably just begun in which the work that has started again in Jerusalem has been hampered and stopped. And that's where we're going to pick up at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message or word 
was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. A couple things on this opening verse. When it says this is a vision or a word of great conflict, the thought here is it's a lengthy or prolonged time of embattlement or conflict that he has seen. It's interesting also, whatever he saw here, whatever word or message or vision he was given, the text never tells us. The angel will explain the details in chapter 11, but this text never tells us what he saw or what he heard. We're just going to hear from the angel later on with the explanation. It says he understood it. If you remember on a couple of these other visions, when he sees them, he goes to an angel and he says, I don't, what, what am I seeing? Explain this to me. Here he has the vision or the message and he says, I understood it. So this is a little different. It's probably not quite as enigmatic as some of the earlier ones. But as we'll see, even though he has at least a broad understanding, he still doesn't uh, get the whole picture. And so he's going to pray about that. And then the angel is going to fill him in again in chapter 11 as he has previously. But the message, whatever else it means, he knows that it's one of great conflict or lengthy conflict. Verse 2, he says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three full weeks. I didn't eat any tasty food or food of desirability, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. I assume that this mourning, 21 days of mourning and fasting, he's not abstaining from all food, but he's, he's not eating anything that would be good. He's on porridge or he's on oatmeal instead of hamburgers and steaks. And it says uh, he doesn't use ointment. He's not using cologne or aftershave after he cleans up. He's, he's setting himself aside to do nothing but get before God and grieve, as it were, probably over what he has seen. And remember, what he has seen has to do with the Jews, God's people, his people, and Israel. Also, if he knows that the work in Israel has already stopped, along with the vision he's seen, this may be a double whammy, so to speak. He may be grieved over the vision, lots of conflict coming up. He may also be grieved over the fact that he, if he's heard this, and we don't know this, but if he's heard that the work has been stopped, he would also be grieved over that. And you remember in chapter 9, his heart was to see the Jews restored and the temple rebuilt and God honored by worship taking place again in his temple and in his city. It's interesting, too, you remember that he was told and it was reaffirmed that as he had read Jeremiah, he knew 70 years would transpire for this captivity. So if he knows that the, te the temple building has stopped, he may be scratching his head thinking, Lord, 70 years are up. The first wave of migrants have gone back and they've started the work, but now it's stopped. It is interesting that if you divide up these years and if you go back to the first deportation in 605-606 B.C., it is 70 years exactly from that deportation to the first uh, wave of migrants back, 536. But the temple wasn't destroyed for 20 years later after that first deportation. So 606, the first wave is taken, Daniel included. 586, the temple is destroyed 20 years later. Well, the temple is begun at 536, but it's not completed for 20 more years. In other words, there was a 70-year period of de deportation, and there was also a 70-year period of the temple being destroyed, but they weren't 
they weren't fully lapped on one another. There was a 20-year offset. So Daniel may have been thinking, again, if he heard this, the temple's supposed to be rebuilt, the 70 years is over, but apparently in God's economy, he was waiting the 20 more years till the temple had been destroyed also for a 70-year or a full 70-year period. I hope that you guys feel like I do. The more time I've spent in this book, Daniel, chapter 12 will say, will shine like the stars in heaven, like the righteous. But Daniel is one of these characters that the more you study him, the more impressed you are with him. And it's interesting, in the the age of the church when the Holy Spirit's given, which wasn't true of the period that he lived in, different, uh, I look at Daniel and I feel like I'm the midget and he is the moral giant. He is the man of character and he definitely shines through in chapter 10. But he's seen a vision in which Israel is going to have a series of long conflict. Now he's an old man and he's not going to be around to see it. He hasn't gone back with the immigrants to to uh, Israel probably both because of his age, at least 90, and also he may have responsibilities in the government that they simply weren't going to turn him loose for. His heart is to be in Jerusalem at the temple with the rest of God's people. He can't be there, but his response when he understands that trouble lies ahead for God's people, he mourns. It's grievous to him. In other words, We could say it this way, the things that are grievous to God are grievous to Daniel. And probably the flip side, the things that God would rejoice over, Daniel rejoices over. This is one of those great passages that makes me ask myself, where is my heart at? What what grieves me? What gives me joy? Do the things that grieve God grieve me? Do the things that give God joy give me joy? So that when I hear about what's going on in God's kingdom or in the church or whatever, am I rejoicing over what God rejoices over? Is it important enough? Do I grieve over what God grieves over? Is it important enough? Or am I just consumed with the little things of this life? You know, the things that wither and die in the end that have no lasting importance. Or is my heart, like Daniel, set on the things that God counts important? I think this is one of those passages that, again, I come away thinking, God, grant me a heart like Daniel to be thinking about, to be mindful of the things you count important and not the trivial things of this life that are going to pass away. Well, look at verse 4. This starts uh, the angelic visitation, so to speak. Verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, in this case, not the Euphrates, but the Tigris, Let me stop again for just a minute. Since this is the first month, this is the month of Passover for the Jews. And since this is the 24th, remember the Passover's on the 14th, it's 10 days after the Passover. Daniel's been fasting through most of the first month. This would correspond to our March, April, uh, just depending on how the, the cycles work out. My suspicion is as he's been fasting, his mind has been in part on the Exodus. And you remember in the Exodus, God delivers his people from the land of slavery and captivity, and he sends them to the promised land. And here, Daniel and his people have been in the land of captivity, and they are now heading back. Some of them have already left, back to the land of promise. So I suspect this theme about God delivering and God freeing from slavery and captivity is on his mind, and yet he knows there's more trouble ahead. This is interesting, too. Do you remember when God talks to Abraham in Genesis? 
he tells him as he makes this unconditional covenant with him that your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land and they're going to be oppressed for 400 years. But at the end of that period, God said he would come in and he would deliver them. Later he says he bore them on wings of eagles and delivered them into the promised land. This is kind of like that almost in reverse. Daniel knows that they're going back now. So they're going back to the land of promise, but God has told them clearly, yes, they're going back, but long periods of trouble lie ahead for them, just like Abraham knew. My, my descendants, the promised people that come from me are going to be oppressed for a long time before they're finally delivered. And we've looked at this in those earlier prophecies when we've seen the great Gentile powers march through history that it would only be at the end of those that God, Jesus, would return and restore the kingdom to Israel and set up his kingdom that would have no end, chapter 7 being the key on that. So anyway, my, my suspicion is his thoughts have been about slavery in foreign lands and deliverance, and yet he knows conflict lies ahead. At verse 5, he's by the river. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen or a white garment whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, depending on your translations. This is probably... A yellow topaz is probably the thought here, this golden yellow stone, precious stone. Uh, His body was a shining gold. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. This is the man he sees above the river. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless... A great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. It's interesting, depending on what commentators you read, some people say this is an angel, which I just find very hard to believe. In chapter 12, the picture here is clearer than it is right here in chapter 10, but in chapter 12, it says this man stands above the river and there's an angel on either side. This person he sees is suspended between heaven and earth and there's an angel on either side of the river as he looks at this. If you check chapter 8, it's almost the same picture. This vision he sees of this supernatural being is standing above the Ulai Canal with angels ministering for him around it. This is the same thought here. And this description, if you compare this, uh, write notes if you like, but if you look at Acts chapter 9 and Revelation 1, or if you look at Daniel chapter 7, the description here sounds like, in my mind, it can only be Jesus in this theophany, this appearance, an Old Testament appearance of God himself in taking on this mortal or human visage to come and appear to Daniel. In fact, in Acts 9, which is the story of Saul's conversion, God knocks Saul off the horse. The appearance is the same. Not only that, but in that story, the people with Saul, they don't see anything, just like Daniel. They hear something, and they're terrified, and what do they do? They run and hide. And the description in Revelation 1 is almost identical to this, as is the the picture of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. So I assume that the person we're seeing here is God himself in the person of Jesus coming in and addressing Daniel. Uh, This is not unheard of. I hope you know as you read the Old Testament stories, 
uh, Genesis 19, when it says the angel of the Lord comes, it's clear in the story that this person who addresses Abraham isn't just an angel, it's God himself. Um, and, and we've got lots of these appearances, so this is not unusual. Perhaps the clarity or the brilliance of the appearance is a little unusual for the Old Testament. But this appears to be Jesus himself. And if you remember chapter 7, when it talks about the throne of the Ancient of Days, it says that there's this fire all around his throne, and it's like a river that comes from his throne coming out and flowing before him. And it's this thought that here is this, this person standing before him who's so bright he's hard to look at. And his appearance is so frightening and so overwhelming that as we'll see, uh, it says, Daniel says, I had no strength left. This, this uh, gets a little more clear later on here. Uh, but that uh, reminds me of the verse that our God is this consuming fire. And that when he appears in glory, nobody can stand before him. You can't stand in front of God on your own uh, will, as we'll see here. God is a consuming fire. And that in the presence of deity, even a man as great as Daniel cannot stand up. In fact, just as happened in chapter 8 here, in chapter 8 it says he swooned. And you'll see the picture is, here first he's standing by the river, but we're going to see he's flat on his face now. Having seen this person, seen God in, in person, his strength is no strength at all. This, this godly, righteous man cannot stand in front of God himself. And that in the spiritual realm, it's only God's power that has power. We have no power at all. This is an encouragement to me because it reminds me that when it comes to God accomplishing his purposes, it does not depend on you or I pumping spiritual weights or working up spiritual purpose or willpower, you name it. Uh, you and I uh, cannot do anything in our own steam to accomplish God's purposes. God calls us before him. He says, I want to talk to you. We get in front of him, and what happens? We fall on our face. We can't even speak. We can't even look at him. He doesn't need our help. He is pleased to come down, and he's been pleased to give us himself in his spirit, and as you read the book of Acts, it's clear that Luke, and God through Luke, is wanting to tell us that what Jesus began to do personally on the earth, he continues to do through his body, now the church. But he does that because he's pleased to. And in fact, if you read those early chapters of Acts, it's clear that the church knows it's only God himself in us, the Holy Spirit in us, that accomplishes God's work. So when you read those early prayers of the church, you read them praying that God would perform signs and wonders. God would verify the testimony about Jesus. They had no thought that they were going to accomplish something on their own. In fact, do you remember when Peter heals the lame man at the temple? And they look at Peter and he says, don't bother looking at me. This is God's power. I can't do anything. I can't do anything. When we see the likes of Daniel just falling down and falling out, this should just be a good reminder to us. God accomplishes his things through his power. And he's pleased to use people like you and I. But it's not our strength that he uses. It's not what we bring to the table that he uses. He uses us in spite of what we are and in spite of our infirmities. So that you've got the great passage in 2 Corinthians that we're this cracked clay pot that God has put this treasure in. And the power that 
God accomplishes to, to perform his work is not ours, it's his. So that Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that I'll glory in my weakness because now I know that in my weakness, God comes through and he is strong. You know, oftentimes we think we're going to start off and we're going to do these great things for God. We're going to do these great things for God. There's a great story by Frank Peretti called The Visitation. And in the naive uh, good intentions of this young pastor, he says he's going to come into the city and he's going to take it for Christ. I'm going to take this city for Christ. You know, as if I'm going to come in and I'm going to do this great thing for God. And that's not the way it works. God has his program. And no book more clearly lines that out than Daniel. God tells Daniel to be the end from the beginning, all the program he's going to accomplish, and it's going to be his power that gets it done. So Daniel's ability to stand or reply, Daniel's ability to be part of what God's doing is through God's strength, not Daniel's. As great a guy as Daniel is, it's not his strength that accomplishes anything. It's God's. It's God's in Daniel. It's Daniel's God, not him. Verse 9 He says, I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. He's like an electric, you know, if you overload an electric circuit, what happens? The the breaker trips. You know, uh, Daniel's breaker is tripped. Humanity stands before deity, and it's overwhelming. It's more than he can take in. So he was standing. He's flat on his face now. He can't lift his head. He can't speak. He is overloaded. Verse 10, Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So he was flat on his face. Now he's shakily on his hands and knees. And the one touching him said, Daniel, man of high esteem. Now I like this because I hope this sounds like a cartoon to you. Do you get, does this sound or look humorous to you? This, this angelic being is saying to this guy who's, who's on his hands and knees, he can't stand, he can't lift his head up, and he's saying, oh, Daniel, man of high esteem. This is funny. Daniel, you guy that you can't even stand up in front of God's presence, you're valued in heaven's eyes. I love this. This gives hope for you and I. If Daniel, flat on his face, overwhelmed, if it can be said of him, You are, in heaven's eyes, desirable. The thought here is you are of great value. When it says man of high esteem, it said the same thing in chapter 8. It means of great worth. So heaven looks at this pathetic creature shaking on his hands and feet, on his hands and knees, and says, you are highly valued in heaven. This is just another reminder. You know, To be highly valued by God, we don't have to bring anything to the table but ourselves. We bring our sinful, deficient selves to God. He wipes out our sins and our transgressions through the offering of his Son for us. He makes us a new creature. And then he says, I delight in you. We don't bring anything but a sinful, deficient self. He makes us over and takes delight in us. He makes us one of his own and says, we are of high value. We are of high value. Heaven looks at this poor human creature and says, you're of great worth in the eyes of heaven. And you know, if you and I want that same thing to be said of us, all we have to do is do like Daniel, put God's priorities as our priorities. What grieves God? What rejoices God? Those are, that's where Daniel's heart was at. That was, it was simple. That's all we have to do. 
You know, if you're a Christian, God delights in you as a father does his child. That's a given. But like any child, you and I can either grieve the spirit, Paul says, or we can let God rejoice over us through obedience and faithfulness, as Daniel was doing here. But we don't have to be big or important in the world's eyes. We don't have to look impressive for heaven to look at you or I and say, you're of great worth in the eyes of God. This is great. This gives hope to all of us. Verse 12, he said to me, this angel speaking with him, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day, remember we're 21 days into this period of fasting and grieving, from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So, 21 days earlier, when Daniel started his fast, he said, God, I want to understand what this all means. Remember, he had some general understanding, the text tells us in verse 1. But he wanted to understand how this all fit together. Maybe he wanted to understand how the long conflict in his vision tied in with the 77's prophecy he'd had in chapter 9. But he wants to figure it out. And the angel tells him, Daniel, the, the first day you set your heart to understand, God heard your prayer and answered and sent me. The first day. Now, we're not going to get into this... Uh, spiritual warfare that becomes an issue here this week. We're going to save that for next week. There was a reason why it took three weeks for Daniel to have this understanding that he's going to get in chapter 11. But the angel tells him, as soon as you set your heart to to know and understand, God heard and he sent me. Uh, It didn't require this lengthy fast. If Daniel had stopped, as it were, at the first day, God had already heard him. He didn't have to fulfill a lengthy period of righteousness or faithfulness. God had heard him the first day. And God had already sent the messenger. God had already sent the interpretation and the understanding for him. This also encourages me in the sense that, you know, oftentimes I think we feel like, Lord, we pray about things, but we don't see much happening. And I wonder if that's because we're praying perhaps about the wrong things. Daniel had a vision about God's things, God's people, God's kingdom, and he wanted to understand it. And he prays about that, and God answers the first day. I wonder if a lot of times we're not so busy praying, God bless me, God help me, about things that God's concerned about, but maybe are short of the big picture. And that if we were focused a little bit more fully as Daniel was on, God, what are you up to? God, what's important in your eyes right now? What's important with your people? Or we would say with the church today, where are you working? What are you concerned about? What grieves you? What are you rejoicing over? And if we were praying about those things that in God's eyes are priorities, I wonder if we wouldn't feel like our prayer life was more satisfactory, that we had more of a sense of God's uh, being involved in what we're praying with because we're praying about things God's involved in. I think maybe sometimes we're getting the the, uh, cart before the horse. If we're making God's priorities our priorities, I think that we would have more satisfaction, more of a sense of being involved in the things God's involved with. You remember when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, 
he puts God and God's things first. You know, our Father who are in heaven, make your name holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before he gets around to talking about give us this day our daily bread, most of the time we're saying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, and we forget the whole first half of the prayer. See, Daniel's focusing on the first half. God, what are you up to? What's important to you and your kingdom? What's important? What are you doing with your people, Israel? Why isn't your temple being built? These kinds of things. So Daniel's focus is in the right place. He's talking to God about the things God is concerned about. So don't just pray, help me, God, but ask God, Lord, what are you concerned about? How can I be praying your will? Look at verse 13. The angel says, I was sent the first day, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And as I said, we'll look at this later, uh, more fully uh, later. The prince of Persia, the kings of Persia are not humans. They are demons. Michael is an angel. And during this three weeks of Daniel waiting, there has been this battle waged between demons and angels in a realm Daniel couldn't see. But it's the reason why it took three weeks for him to hear this. And we'll talk about this. We'll look at the... uh, This is one of a very few passages that really kind of shed light or open the door on things that we can't see in the world around us as far as spiritual reality, and we'll look at that next week. So the angel was held up, but he finally gets through after Michael comes and helps him, and he says, now I've come to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the end days for the vision, the vision Daniel had seen, pertains to days yet future. So he had some understanding, not all. The angel's going to explain the rest to him. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. And earlier, if you remember, when Daniel was seeing these visions, he was overwhelmed. It says he felt sick afterwards, or he swooned earlier. The same thing here. I have retained no strength. How can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. I can't even talk to you, he says. This is the angel. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem or great worth, don't be afraid. Peace be to you. Take courage and be courageous. And as soon as he spoke, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Remember, Daniel overwhelmed in his own strength, but when God's messenger speaks to him, and gives him strength, Daniel can stand, and Daniel can listen, and he can interact with the angel. Closing out chapter 10, he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince, which we'll look at next time. 
There's a verse in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. It says, and actually in context, it was a warning to the king to whom it was spoken, but it says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support the ones whose heart is completely his. You and I as humans, we bring sin and weakness to God. But this text says God looks for those on the earth like Daniel whose heart belongs to God, that is, his priorities are God's priorities, he values God first, and then it says God looks for those folks so that he can come in and strongly support them. So it doesn't matter if we're weak. This text says, and Daniel illustrates, that if God has our heart, he doesn't need our strength, he doesn't need our abilities. He says he'll use his own, but he'll come in and he will strongly support those whose hearts are his. So for you and I, if we want to have significance in the kingdom of God, all we have to do is give God our heart, our affections, our lives. I say just, this is love the Lord your God with all that you are and all that you have. He'll provide the strength. He'll come in and bring the strong support. We don't have to. This chapter, this opening of this last passage of Daniel shows God's man coming before God, having no strength to stand whatsoever, but volunteering himself and saying, Lord, I want to know what you're about and I want to be a part of your program. This would be like if you guys, some of us here are parents, many, if my three-year-old comes to me and I'm working on a project and my three-year-old says, Dad, I want to help you with your work. What can I do? You know, my three-year-old brings no skills. He brings probably no strength. Let's say that we're building the deck. He can't hold the end of the board up. He may not even speak very well. He may have in himself absolutely no ability to actually help me in what I'm doing. But if my three-year-old comes up and tells me, Dad, I want to help you. I want to be part of your work. I want to hang out with you. I am tickled pink. Because I understand my three-year-old saying, Dad, my heart's with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to do what you're doing, Dad. And that's what we see Daniel doing here. And that's why heaven, heaven's God and heaven's messengers, the angels, can look at Daniel or can look at you and I and say, you are highly valued by heaven. Because like that three-year-old, you're not bringing much to the table. You don't bring much to help God in his plans, but you don't need to. You come and you give God your heart and he'll take care of the rest. And again, what a great reminder you know, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God doesn't need our wisdom. It says he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He doesn't need our strength. It says he's chosen the things that are not, whether you think of reputation, strength, standing, anything, to shame the things that are. The things that in the world's eyes are considered of no value or useless, God says, that's what I'm going to use because it's then that my power shines through. And again, as we'll see in chapter 12, the angel says, you, Daniel, and people like you, you're like stars shining in heaven. Heaven looks at you and says, you're those gleaming lights in a dark world. Heaven looks down at Daniel and says, you're a man of high esteem. You're valued highly because you put God's things and God first. And any of us can do that. God can come in and strongly support any one of us 
when we're like Daniel and put God and God's things first. Let's pray. Lord, none of us can stand in your presence except by your doing. None of us has a claim to righteousness, Lord, except by the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Lord, what a wonder it is that you condescended to become one of us, to leave heaven's glory in your Father's side, to die for our sins, and then to redeem us and come and inhabit us, Lord, weak, creatures like us, sinful and deficient, and yet, Lord, your glory is displayed in your condescension. And, Lord, you make it easy for the weakest and the most foolish among us to be counted of high value in your eyes simply by giving you our hearts and our minds and our lives. By saying with your Son, our Father, who are in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Father, help each one of us lay ourselves, our lives, our ambitions, our hopes, our dreams with Daniel down before you. Help us to seek you as silver and gold to make you our chief possession and the end of all our hopes and dreams, Lord. Lord, none of those who put their hopes in you are disappointed. Help us to worship you with all that we are, Lord, all that we have, all that we think. We bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.